Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we're helping you solve your work problems with the power of input. If you get a bunch of smart people together in a room and talk about a real issue going on, inevitably there are three or four people who have dealt with the same issue before and have a ton of ideas for that person on what they can do as a next step to move it forward. Welcome to Jill on Money. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we've got answers to some questions. Do you find yourself wondering, what am I supposed to do to create a vision for my team? Or maybe, how do I get better feedback from my stakeholders? When's the right time to make the next move in my career? How can I successfully manage my former peers? If any of these thoughts comes into your mind day in and day out, when you think about work, then I've got a treat for you. Today on the pod, Dave Stahoviak. He is the mastermind behind Coaching for Leaders, and he is going to discuss issues that are important for employers, employees, and how to manage yourself better throughout your workday. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Dave Stahoviak, the host of the Coaching for Leaders podcast, founder of the Coaching for Leaders Academy. Welcome to Jill on Money. The shoe's on the other foot now, mister. Ha ha ha, Jill, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. It's amazing. We've had a, like a little bit of a love affair, Dave. I mean, yeah, let's be honest. Um, who found who? I think that you found me, then I found you. Here's what happened. I was on the Betterment website because we were moving financial stuff and I came across your picture at the bottom and I was like, oh, they have a podcast. Who's this person called Jill? And, and you know, the rest was history. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And they're no longer my um, sponsor, so I'm glad we caught you when we did. We were sort of in this beautiful overlapping moment of your needs and where we were. So it's fantastic. So before we go any further, we must ask you the very important question because, you know, this is a financial podcast. I'm going to let you answer the question one of two ways. We like to start with what is your best financial or maybe in your case, career decision. What would that be, Dave? It's actually the same answer for both, buying the microphone I'm talking to you on right now. What happened prior to that? What was going on in your life? Let's go back in time, Dave. I started my career in education, actually working for a company that did after-school tutoring for kids. And I gradually morphed into adult learning and uh, worked uh, worked with Dale Carnegie for many years and still do a bunch of projects with Dale Carnegie. And for a whole slew of reasons I won't bore you with, I was literally sitting um, surfing the internet <laughs> one Thanksgiving weekend doing what I should have been doing, which was working on my dissertation. And uh, like any good dissertation student, I was trying to find something else to do. And uh, I came across someone online who was teaching people how to do podcasting. Hmm. And this was 2011, so before anyone knew what a podcast was. And I just thought to myself, that is what I'm going to do. I am going to start a podcast because um, I was just so excited about the technology and I had been listening to podcasts for a couple of years. But I also saw at the time some things changing just in my work and training and in our industry. And I thought, I'm probably not going to be doing this for the next 
10, 15, 20 years. Mm. And it's probably time to start thinking about what I'm going to do next. And that was the that was the genesis of it. But it was very much a hobby at the beginning. Let's go back in time, first of all, because Mark and I were going through some of the information that we found out about you. And we decided there's never anything that interesting in somebody's official bio. The good stuff is not in the bio. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Chicago, a town called Naperville, and uh, went to school in Illinois and then came out to California after graduating from my undergraduate. As you graduated from college, what did you think you were going to do with your life? I had no idea, Jill. I had seven official majors in college. Seven? Um, That's six more than you probably need. Yeah. Yeah. I started in the engineering school as a computer science major. I went to liberal arts. By the time I was done, I was in the business school. If you look at my transcript, it's a complete mess. <laughs> and so it was 1999 when I graduated. The economy was on fire. Everyone I knew was getting three or four job offers. People were getting huge signing bonuses. And I remember distinctly going to a career event on campus and walking around at the business career fair and seeing all the different accounting firms and tax companies that were hiring business students to go work downtown Chicago. And I just had this visceral reaction of, I don't feel like I am built to go put on a suit and go work in an office building for Mm. 50 hours a week crunching numbers. Hmm. And I stumbled across a guy who was wearing a neon polo shirt at the career fair And he said, we are hiring the uh, top graduates from top universities to go and run our education businesses all over the country and work with kids all day. And we're going to teach you how to run the business, but we're also going to help you to improve the lives of kids, in some cases in some inner city areas. And I was like, I'm in. And was this Dale Carnegie? No, it was a company called Score Educational Centers. It was a division of Kaplan at the time. Uh, They're kind of in that, they were in that same space of, Sylvan and Kumon and uh-huh. some of those other organizations, and uh, they don't exist anymore, sadly. But it was a fabulous concept, and they were hiring the top grads. Um, and they basically said, "We're going to take you and uh, help you to learn the sales, the marketing, the management. You're going to run a small business. You're going to have P and L responsibility for quarter million dollar business, basically a year or two in." And I was like, "Sign me up and send me to California. I cannot wait." How long did that period last for you? That was three years. And I came to the conclusion fairly quickly that while I loved the work and I just had such a joy working with kids, working with kids was also, it's also extremely, extremely energy draining. Mm. Um, At least for me, it was. I look at the teachers who teach our kids and I'm just so in awe of how they do it. Uh, But I realized that wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. (laughs) And uh, on the side of all this, I had really developed an interest in coaching potentially being a professional coach or professional speaker. And so I started a little bit of a coaching practice. At some point, uh, I guess it was about three years into my career, I said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to start my own coaching practice at 23 or 24 years old, whatever it was, and uh, start my own business. And and I gave my notice and I was off and running. How did you uh, know this? Wait a second. How do you know how to be a good coach? This is obviously for a career coach, not a professional sports coach, but what is it in yourself that you recognize would bring value to others in their career journeys? Well, at the time, I thought I could take a bunch of classes and I would be ready to go, which is what I did. I went through a coach training program uh, that these things exist and there's a whole bunch more of them now and graduated from the program. And I said, I know everything I need to know to be a coach and help people be more effective in the workplace. And I thought I was off and running. 
as you would imagine, <laughs> I found out pretty quickly that's not the case. Uh, it turns out you have to have a lot of experience, too. And I, I ran a small business into the ground, basically. Um, what do you mean? How could you do it so quickly and efficiently? Well, I didn't find any clients. <laughs> <laughs> because people are like, okay, you're hanging a shingle out. So what? Right? It's actually amazing to me looking back now. I got as far as I did. I did find a few clients. I mean, I think people felt sorry for me, frankly. Um, <laughs> it was I, like I joined my, a few networking It's going to be like, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, that guy. All right. Uh, look at this cute 24-year-old who's out starting his own business. And I had a few people hired me who were twice my age and had tons of experience. And, 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 and it, things went okay for a bit. But clearly, that was not the right move. Uh, and so I ended up, I'm seven, eight months into running this business, had virtually no clients, uh, didn't know what I was going to do next, and, uh, you know, and, and was in debt, of course, too, because I wasn't, it didn't have an income. Mm. And, uh, but that was, looking back now, that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it taught me the lesson, first of all, of not jumping in with both feet uh, in something brand new. It also helped me realize I needed a lot more experience. And, and it really motivated me to uh, to go work for Carnegie. Uh, that was the next step after that. And I'm so glad that happened because I that opened up so many doors. How did you know to go to Carnegie? Like, what were what were the options? So you're like, oh, my God, I'm going broke. You, you're not married at this point. Otherwise, you're married to the nicest person ever. <laughs> I uh, I just had met uh, Bonnie and we were I was so I decided to go to grad school as one step in this process of learning more and discovering more. So I'm I'm in school and I sent out an email to the 25 people I knew best in the world at the time. And the email essentially said, hey, I've gone through this journey over the last year of trying to start my own business. Um, it didn't work out. Here's where I think I'm going next in my career. Here's what I really think I'd like to do. If you know of an opportunity or something or a connection that you could make for me, I would be tremendously grateful. And I sent that email out. And a couple weeks later, a friend of mine emailed me back and said, hey, I'm taking a Dale Carnegie course at my organization right now. And I think you would be really good at this. Would you like me to make an introduction for you to my instructor? And I said, sure. And that, that was that the That is a great story because it's sort of like being fixed up on a date, right? Someone who knows you really well, who can then say, here's what I think would work for you. And and there was probably very little downside except for the time and the expense. Yeah, exactly. And I would probably never have thought about Carnegie or had it come across my radar screen otherwise. Um, and I now teach folks, when they come to me and say, how do I help make a career transition? One of the first things I'll say to people is, you have a bunch of people in your life who love you and want to help you. Teach them how to do it. Because a lot of times people don't know how to help you. They want to help, but they, you know, they have good intentions, but they don't necessarily know what to do. Mm. And for me, sending that email and showing the 20, 25 people in my life at the time, how you can help me right now was huge. And if I hadn't done that, uh, I think things would have gone a really different direction. What is it about Carnegie that resonates with you? Like, what was your aha moment? I had read a couple of the books. Um, unlike a lot of people go to work for Carnegie, I had never taken the class uh, before that. Um, but I had read a couple of the books, so I knew the name. But what really impressed me about Carnegie, and still does, is so much of Carnegie's work was 
going on the assumption that people generally knew what good things were to do in the world. <laughs> people know that they need to smile. People know that they need to listen well. The challenge is, is most of us don't do it nearly as consistently as we need to. And so much of the work Carnegie does is around reminding people of what they already know, but really investing the time in actually creating behavior change. Um, and that for me was so different than any learning environment I had ever been in and informs so much of my work today uh, in my work with the Coaching Leaders Academy. So when you are coaching, what are the most frequent coaching issues that you encounter that we can learn from just listening without going through your amazing academy? Because maybe some people aren't so close by, but you'll tell us more about how we would do that anyway. But what is it that you run across so often? It's the people stuff. The conversations at the leadership level, it's all about people. It's how do I give feedback to someone? It's how do I get people motivated? How do I set a vision? Those are the kinds of things that come up in virtually every conversation. It's not, I need more knowledge about how to do something technically. It's how do I really engage with people well and be more curious and stop giving so much advice and stop micromanaging, which is the traps that a lot of us fall into when we begin managing for the first time, and even those of us have been managing for years, we fall into those traps a lot. Are companies getting smarter about how they move people into the realm of management and just helping them get more out of their coworkers and staff? Yes, they're getting smarter. We're not nearly doing enough around this. And this is, of course, the huge challenge. It's the reason Marshall Goldsmith wrote the book years ago, uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Many of us you know, got into the roles we're in because of our technical expertise, because we became expert at something and we got very good at doing it. And then we became the manager, director, <laughs> departmental lead, whatever the title was. And the job is entirely different. When you show up as the leader of a organization and leading a team of people who've oftentimes are doing the job you used to do and you did really well, an entirely different job. And the organization also takes a big hit often when you make that move. On one hand, you've pulled someone out of the job who was performing really well previously. Like if you were the best individual contributor on that team previously, you're gone from that role. So that, that role is missing. And then you're moved into a role where you're now leading a team, which is an entirely different kind of job. And you're doing it for the first time. And to your point, you know, a lot of times we haven't gotten a lot of training doing it or formal direction on where to go. And that's hard too. So the organization in a lot of ways takes hits on two different positions uh, right away. And that's a big transition for most of us. And you actually will suggest to people that they create some sort of environment where you can feel safe to explore these issues, right? That like your first, your baby step would be to say, create your own community. Maybe it's in your company, outside your company, but a way to support each other. Have, had you done that? How do you find those people? What, how do you reach out to them? Yeah, that I didn't do it myself early on, and it's something that I really missed. And I think the internet has opened up so much opportunity for us to do more of this, even outside of our own organizations. Um, yeah, so we have a whole bunch of people in our community now who have taken the step of, rather than just showing up and struggling, or maybe just relying on the resources that are in my organization, and some organizations do a really great job at this, but a lot don't do a great job at this, um, of how do I create some community 
within my professional network to do a check-in. I love the model that John Stepper has put out in the world. Uh, he is a, a framework called Working Out Loud, and it's an open source project where he teaches people how to uh, go and find other folks within your professional network and to create what he calls a circle and to meet with them on some some recurring frequency and to work on getting better at something of how to make your work more visible in your organization and to learn together. And I think that kind of a thing is something that most people don't think to do. But the people I know who have really been intentional about creating community and professional connections as leaders really shine uh, because leadership is a really lonely thing for most of us. Mm. And if we don't find the connections, the people who can help to support us, coach us, I think we really limit our potential. And we also limit our ability to work through the difficult, challenging times that emerge for all of us in roles like this. We'll get back to our interview with Dave Stahoviak in just a minute. This is Jill on Money. Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, and host of the Jill on Money podcast. And I'm here to tell you that the Jill on Money podcast has a new sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations and offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers educational articles and videos to help you get better about your finances, which you can find in the resources section on Marcus.com. So check it out. You can money. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now back to our interview with Coaching for Leaders Mastermind, Dave Stahoviak. How is it that you created the coaching academy and what what will somebody get by participating what happens in the coaching academy the story goes back a little bit so in grad school uh and i've spent a lot of years in grad school as a a lot of other people i came to this kind of realization halfway through of the best experience going through this program is when someone in the room said something like you know we've been talking about this theory And I'm dealing with this situation in my workplace right now. And I'd love some advice from other people here in the room in how I can solve this problem. And then in those brief moments, the class would stop for five or 10 minutes and we'd talk through a situation. And it was really eye-opening to me of like, if you get a bunch of smart people together in a room and talk about a real issue going on, inevitably there are three or four people who have dealt with the same issue before and have a ton of ideas for that person on what they can do as a next step to move it forward. And yet that's very, very little of most of the professional learning experiences most of us have had in higher education and even in corporate training programs. We create case studies and we create curriculums and syllabi and all the things that follow set structures. And I just had this realization at some point of what if we created a learning environment for experienced leaders that doesn't have people writing papers and doing case studies and doing group work, (laughs) but we create the entire experience around getting a bunch of smart people together in the room and using real life situations to talk through problems and help people find the next step. And so that's what emerged with the academy is it's the thing that I always wanted for myself selfishly 
in learning so that I could not only get better through the practical experiences of others, but also solve real problems as they were happening versus doing more of like an artificial learning experience. Have you had organizations hire you to come in and create, you know, the general feel of the academy, but within a company? No, because the whole model of what we're doing is getting people together who are not in the same organization and not in the same industry. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've occasionally had someone who's got some professional connection to someone else that has become a member of the academy. What has happened a lot is our members have seen what we're doing with the academy and gone through the process over the year. And they say at some point during the year, hey, I'd like to do this internally in my own organization. Would you all support me in doing that? And can I you know, borrow some of your ideas? And I, I always say, sure, like, uh, what can I do to help? Um, because I think the more we can be doing peer mentoring and, and create community with each other within their organizations too is a fabulous step for most leaders. There are a lot of people who have mentors, mentees. Certainly they also have people who are beyond that, that maybe they're sponsors. How do you coach people to get a better relationship with a mentor, mentee, or find a sponsor who's really going to help push you up through an organization? We had on Coaching for Leaders recently, uh, Julia Taylor Kennedy. She's with the Center for Talent Innovation. I think I'm getting that right. And she made the distinction between mentors and sponsors. The distinction she makes is mentors are people who talk with you. Sponsors are people who talk about you. I love that distinction. And we've heard the word sponsorship a lot more in professional circles in the last few years. I think for for me, when I'm talking with someone who's looking for building relationships and, and reaching out to what we would traditionally call a quote unquote mentor in the organization is find someone who's willing to sponsor you. Invest your time and relationships in connecting with people in the organization who yeah, are doing great things and are in influential positions, but also people that are willing to take a chance on you and are willing to advocate on your behalf to the organization and someone that you are willing to do some great work for. And maybe that means that you take on some more things or you offer to help support them on a project. I I think we're moving away from this mindset in a lot of professional circles where, you know, I'm just going to take someone to coffee and pick their brain uh, or do an informational interview. I I think that ship has sailed as far as that being an effective way to connect with people. Uh, Today, when someone says like, I how do I get connected with this person? I often make the suggestion, especially if it's internal to the organization, of, you know, go find out what they're working on and what they care about right now. And how can you help? Is there something you could do to lend your expertise or a little bit of your time or the resources of your part of the organization to help that person advance their goals? Boy, that's the kind of person that would certainly be the kind of person I'd want to advocate for. And I think you set yourself up to be the kind of person who's then building relationships with sponsors versus then just sitting down and getting advice from someone for 20 or 30 minutes. Right. Because I think that there's the feeling that can occur, which is I've put myself out for this person. What am I getting in response? I know that there's not a tit for tat, but I I have uh, observed that many of the most successful mentor-mentee relationships, you both get something out of it, right? You both, you're both learning from one another. And it's really tricky, right? Because you got to find the right people and You also have to have a mentor who's going to call you on your crap. I mean, what's the point of having someone who says you're perfect all the time, except for you, Dave, because you are perfect all the time. But that actually (laughs) brings up another question. To whom do you turn, you being the coaching for leaders guru, 
Who are your coaches? Who are your peers? Do you have a group that for you and to help you continue to grow? Yeah, I absolutely. So a couple of years ago, um, I went out very intentionally and found who are the people who are doing really great work in career podcasting in the world and who have some really uh, incredible shows and went out and said, hey, let's get five or six of us together and get together monthly for several hours and let's uh, let's coach each other. Let's challenge each other. And so there's a group of us. Uh, there's six of us who meet regularly and we've been going for a couple of years now in order to do exactly that, which is to give each other perspective coaching um, to call each other on stuff when we see people doing stuff that doesn't make sense for them and their businesses. That's been huge for me. You know, it's so funny because I'm sure you have this as well. You interview somebody on your show. Hopefully you build some rapport, even if it's a short period of time. I think I have an advantage to some extent in that people come in face to face. I just find it easier to build rapport face to face. Sometimes they'll reach out after and sort of make like another ask of me. And I'm happy to do it. And then I'm always so sorely disappointed when I in like just in the for my book, for example, that, you know, all these people who I went someone above and beyond, not everyone, but for many people. And I didn't get a ton back in that case. You know, I sort of want to go like sort of semi Sicilian on them and be like, you're dead to me. But I can't, you know, (laughs) right? I, I don't want to do that. And and what I've been trying to do is to really relish the people who are incredibly kind to me. So you, for example, maybe my friend who hosts the Stacking Benjamins podcast, where you, know, you sort of create a relationship with somebody. I think that that's a, like a far better use of my energy than my normal negative first response. And you know what? Look, I'm sure I haven't responded to every single person. There's like stacks of emails that are sitting in our inbox. But I guess that I find it terribly disappointing when I feel like I've put myself out for somebody and then they just they don't come through. What's your suggestion to me? Uh, Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, is a wonderful model for what you've just described. Uh, He talks about the three kinds of people in the world. There's the givers, the matchers and the takers. And most people are matchers. You scratch my back if I scratch your back. He talks in the book about what can I do to make the shift from being a matcher to being a giver, the kind of person who does what you do, Jill, which is reach out and build relationships and go above and beyond, but also to do that in a way where I'm not getting taken advantage of a lot. You know, there's no perfect answer for that as far as just thinking about my own experience on it. Um, I have the same experience of, of you of that there's certainly many times that I reach out. And this comes back to Dale Carnegie. There's a chapter in Dale Carnegie's book that's titled Expecting Gratitude. And I go into that mindset in a lot of interactions um, professionally and, and by the way, in life, uh, with very few exceptions other than close personal relationships. But I just sort of assume that no one's going to necessarily uh, fall head over heels to do anything to help me or support me. And when it does happen, it's like, oh, what a pleasant surprise. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything I do differently in practice as a result of that. The mindset is really helpful Mm. of I am doing this for this person or the world and I have no expectation that anything is ever going to come from it. And if it does at some point, wonderful. Uh, And if it doesn't, I've just done a great thing for the world and strike it up to karma or whatever. Um, That's how I handle that. Um, But the other thing, Jill, too, is 
I've also intentionally set up a business, personal relationships to play to my strengths, which is to have a much smaller set of relationships that are deeper with a small number of people versus doing like trying to reach a mass market and have thousands and thousands of customers. Um, I don't think I could handle that. It would be extremely overwhelming for me and just how I process the world. And so we very intentionally set up the business to play to those strengths of much smaller number of relationships, much deeper, much more long-term relationships. You just use the pronoun we. Who is we when you said we set up the business? Uh, my wife and I uh, have worked together over the years, and she also has a podcast teaching professors how to become better teachers. And so um, so we bounce ideas off each other all the time and uh, really support each other in all of our work. How is it working with your spouse? A lot of people who uh, listen to this podcast, they're small business owners, and I hear from them sometimes. And it's a challenge to be sort of in each other's lives in such a massive way, not just romantically and parenting and all those things, but also in business. So how do you negotiate that? I can't think of another way to do it. Um, and with the other thing is we met in grad school. So we've always had the context of learning and working together. We were in groups together <laughs> doing group work at school. It's just always been a part of our relationship. And it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like not having that context. And because we are in somewhat related fields, uh, she's a professor, but but her area of study is very similar to what we do in Coaching for Leaders. We are always bouncing ideas off each other. You know, we know some of the same people. And so we have great conversations about leadership and learning and technology. And we're both geeky. And so we just have a ton of fun. And yeah, I mean, there's times that you know, we both get overwhelmed in our work, um, but it's it's just a tremendous blessing. I It's hard for me to imagine what it would be like being in a relationship with someone who did something entirely different. And I know most people are. Right. Um, so but that's just not that's not the life I've led. And I am so grateful for this one. So before we let you go, because you do have a very busy life, I understand you've been so generous with your time. We really appreciate it. We started the program and I asked you, what was the best financial or career decision? And you said it was the old microphone, right? So what was your worst? The one that certainly is most memorable for me is my dad worked for the McDonald's Corporation for 30 plus years. He was an executive, um, had a just fabulous, fabulous career. And, uh, he, and he got a lot of stock options uh, over the years. And so my brother and I were the beneficiaries of getting some stock when we were in high school. And so went off to college and my parents had this, uh, you know, wonderful intention that we'd use that stock to, you know, uh, have a down payment for a house someday. And it was my first year, I believe, working professionally and it had had this, you know, amount of money in McDonald's stock and the market had, this was 2000, 2001, the market had just tanked. The stock was at its lowest point that had been in like, I don't know, 30 years or something. And I panicked and I sold it and I put it in an index fund. My dad said, don't do it. The market's low. Don't sell the stock. I sold it. I put it in an index fund, right? Boring. Yeah. I watched then the stock go up dramatically over the next 10 years. And for all these years, I've thought back on that. I mean, I don't live in the past very much, but uh, I thought like, you know, well, boy, if I just hung on to that, you know, I, I, can you I can't imagine how much money I would have had and I, I calculated out once. And I got to thinking about it. I was actually thinking about a context. I, I knew you were going to ask that question because I listen to your show too. I, I'm actually glad it didn't work out that way. Like not only is it the smart, savvy financial thing to do, which is to be in an index fund. I think if I could go back and change my mind, uh, I, I don't know if I'd change it at this point. Because if I had not done that, 
I would have had a pretty sizable amount of money in my late 20s. I don't think that would have been good for me at the time. I think I would have made different career decisions that would ah. inevitably not have pushed me as much. I probably wouldn't be doing this today, which I am grateful for every single day that I've had this opportunity to be doing what I'm doing now. It, while it was a financial misstep, quote unquote, at the time, um, I'm I'm really great, grateful for how it worked out. If I had met you and I was your investment advisor and you said, okay, I'm just making it up. I have 50 grand in McDonald's stock. I would have said, sell that and go into an index fund. I really would. I, there's no doubt that that is the more prudent decision. But here's another funny thing. Here's another connection that we have. When I was a young pup on Wall Street, meaning mostly when I was like in college, high school and college, I used to, I was a clerk for both my dad's company on the American Stock Exchange and then my godfather's company on the New York Stock Exchange. And um, when I was over on the New York Stock Exchange, I was the clerk for McDonald's. How about no kidding. That? Yeah. They'd walk into the crowd and they'd look at my godfather, my so-called Uncle Ralph, and they'd say, Ralph, how are the burgers? And he'd give you both sides of the market. So there it is. Another connection to us. I think you made a good decision. I'm going to take you. I'm taking you off the hook on that one. My mom and uh, you are in the exact same boat. There we go. Good. <laughs> Dave Stahoviak. You are such a kind man. You are the host of the Coaching for Leaders podcast. Mark's going to put a nice link to that for everyone so you can download and subscribe. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Jill, a pleasure. Thanks to Dave Stahoviak. If you like what you heard, head to his website, coachingforleaders.com, and subscribe to his podcast. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. You can go to Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And don't forget, if you've got a financial question, just send us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our expecting father and executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week. 